Good morning, and welcome to New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN, where our goal every Sunday is to entertain, enlighten, and expose you to information that can lead to positive change in your life. I'm Larry Hardesty. Well, today is Super Bowl Sunday, and it shapes up to be one of the most anticipated games in recent memory. Newsday columnist Bob Glauber is in Miami and will share his thoughts on the big game, and he also has a book entitled Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 80s. So we'll talk with Bob in a couple of minutes. So whether you're about to hit the road for an early run, preparing for a sunrise service, just relaxing on the Sunday, or running out to get those Super Bowl snacks, we thank you for joining us and uh, give a listen. When we return, we'll talk coaches, Super Bowls, and New York football when New York Sports and Beyond returns on 98.7 ESPN. Welcome back to New York Sports and Beyond. I'm Larry Hardesty. Bob Glauber has covered the NFL since 1985. He's been a Newsday NFL columnist since 1992. He's been twice selected as the New York State Sports Writer of the Year by the National Sports Media Association. He is president of the Pro Football Writers of America, and he is the author of Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 80s. Join me in welcoming a really nice guy. Bob Glauber, author, sports writer, columnist extraordinaire for Newsday. Hey, Bob. Larry, my man, how are you? It's been I'm doing too great. Long. Always great to hear your voice. Same here. Uh, so how's the weather in Miami? The weather is great. Uh, looks like we'll have a good day for football. You know, the, the weather, no matter what it is during Super Bowl week, rainy, cloudy, whatever, and if it's an outdoor game, it's always beautiful for Super Bowl Sunday. I think we'll get that today. That's excellent. And we got two great teams. We'll talk about that in a minute. I want to start off in the leadoff spot here, Bob, with your book, Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 80s. And it, it, it struck me because, especially with this Super Bowl, we're talking about Andy Reid. And Bob, there's a, there's a feeling around football. There's a respect that, that other coaches, that franchises, that administrators have for what Andy Reid has been able to do. And it's one of the rare times where in this competitive situation that you're hearing folks say, you know what, Andy kind of deserves this. I'm kind of rooting for Andy in this situation. Yeah, I, I agree with you. He is, he is definitely the sentimental favorite here. I mean, you could you could feel it. You could see it. You can hear it. I mean, he knows it. He's aware of it. And I, I mean, I think there is that, you know, he's, he's also got that, you know, kind of cute and cuddly, uh, aura about him. You know, he's a big guy. He's, he's, you know, fun loving. He's uh, kind of an everyman personality to him. And, um, you know, you, you mentioned that, that book and, you know, there is a connection there. I mean, he's from the Bill Walsh coaching tree mm-hmm. and so is Kyle Shanahan. Those are two West coast offense guys. And, it's kind of kind of fun to see that connection from that era to this era. It just just still goes. And Reed, you know, Reed himself has a great coaching tree, and uh, it's it's really kind of neat to see how these guys, in particular, have done adjusting uh, with their teams and and get really getting the most out of their particularly their offenses in what should be a pretty good matchup. I agree with you, Bob. Let's go back to the book. Uh, first of all, how long did it take you to put together, and what was the idea of you sitting back one day, knowing you and, and watch? I've watched Bob work for years, and sitting there just just in his in his little office with his desk, saying, "I need to write a book and make some extra money. How? how what, what can I do to make this make this a reality?" <laughs> hey, you don't write books. Well, you know, you you do it some for the money, but I mean, if you if you write a book, you better better like the idea. So I, I did think of, you know, I kind of came up with a few ideas, and I ran it past uh, 
This guy, Sean Desmond, is a great publisher, great editor, uh, works for Grand Central Books and Hachette. And he really liked this one of Walsh, Gibbs, and Parcells. You know, things have been written about them individually, but I looked at them kind of as a, as a grouping that defined the 80s because those guys really took turns winning championships. Now, there were eight Super Bowl championships among those three guys over an 11-year period. That's pretty astounding mm. to have those kind of rivalries. And, you know, the, the, the fascinating thing to me was they did it so many different ways. I mean, Walsh was the, the great thinker. I mean, the genius. I mean, they, they called him the genius, and, and he was. And, and he, he left behind a legacy that's incredible. But before he left, he won three Super Bowls and really created some of the great offenses. Joe Gibbs, a thinker, but also kind of a, you know, let's, let's play bully football. Let's, let's uh, play smash mouth in the NFC East. And a guy who got the most out of three different quarterbacks, none of whom was close to the Hall of Fame, and won championships with all of them. And then you get the Jersey guy, the tough guy, Parcells. I'm going to smash the ball down your throat. I don't care if you know it's coming. We're going to play tough football, and we're going to play great defense. And Lawrence Taylor really typified that. And then Phil Simms as that really you know blue-collar type quarterback. So, you know, the rivalries between them were, were fascinating. And, and I really got a kick out of, you know, Parcells talking to him after the book came out. It took me about like a year and a half to write it. Uh, two years from start to finish in terms of the concept and reporting of it. But, you know, maybe a year, year and a half. And then Parcells says, look, I really enjoyed this. And one of the reasons was that I had no idea what those other guys were thinking. Mm. You know, I'm in my bubble here. I'm trying to, you know, just do my best as a coach. I had no idea what Joe Gibbs was going through when we were playing him. And, you know, to kind of look at what those three guys had to go through, and they all really struggled early in their careers and all were nearly fired early on, but they kind of persevered and stuck to their convictions. And they get those different ways and they all came out as champions in the end. And that's what was fascinating for me, uh, Bob, in the book is that even when they first started, Walsh in high school and, and Parcells and Gibbs early on in their careers. And, and even when they struggled, they, they, they turn teams around then. And then they come to the, to the pros and they struggle and they have to turn teams around then. And the, the interesting thing for me is a comparison in the three of them. And you did a great job in, in chronicling it. Bob is they came from the school. And I use this with my audience all the time when we talk about basketball and we talk about Pat Riley. Pat Riley, when he was with the Lakers, he was like the Showtime Lakers. We run and dunk, run and gun. We up and down the court. We're beautiful. We're ballet. We're athletic. Then he comes coaches the Knicks. He's like Ewing, uh, the late Anthony Mason, Charles Oakley. Uh, no, we're not athletic. We're, we're ground and pound. We're going to pound it in there. We're going to play the, the the type of game that fits us. So, in other words, to sum it up, Bob, I fit my program to my athletes rather than for my athletes fitting around my program. And there you go, Larry. I mean, that's the brilliance of great coaching. And you cannot be uh, monolithic in your thinking as a coach. You can't say, all right, this is my system. You're going to run it like I tell you to. And that's it. Now, I would say of the three, Walsh probably did that the most. You know, he was very, very tied to his system, and he was stubborn about it. All right? Now, and, and he got players. He got the right players to, to play that system well. And Montana was probably the perfect quarterback for that, you know, finesse type offense where, you know, you, you almost, you, you pass to run and you get that, the easy passing. Um, but, but then again, Walsh had a guy, he had a quarterback in Cincinnati who really had a bad arm 
after his starter got hurt, and that's you know that he invented that offense to compensate for a weak armed quarterback. So so he did have that, but but Gibbs to me was the the ultimate in uh, styling his his team around what the the talent of the players was. Because when you when you got Joe Theismann, when you got Doug Williams, when you got Mark Rippon, you know you, you got to tailor things to what they can do best. And he had an incredible ability to just get the most out of players, putting them in the right places at at the right times. And I got to tell you, Larry, you could make a strong case that Joe Gibbs might have been the greatest tactician, game day tactician in NFL history. Hmm. Didn't have the greatest teams, but man, he hmm. he fought his way to championships because. He used marginally talented players so beautifully and so effectively that it's that it's kind of stunning. And, and you know, Parcells, in, along those lines, he had a high school basketball coach named Mickey Corcoran. And Corcoran told him, he says, listen, and, and he grounded into him. He says, you got to present your players with a plan, all right? got to figure it out. They can't figure it out. It's up to you. And if you do, you give them the plan, they can win. But really, he drilled it into him, and Parcells now drills that into other coaches that he's helped along the way, Sean Payton, Mike Zimmer, and, uh, and others, that and Belichick, really, to get the plan right and figure out what is going to beat this team on this day in this situation. The voice of author, sports writer, columnist Bob Glauber from Newsday. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond. I'm Larry Hardesty on 98.7 ESPN. Bob the mental mind games to challenge and motivate football players. Break it down. How did these, these three guys do it, and how did they do it differently or the same? Okay. Well, now, Walsh was the ultimate mind game player. Walsh had a, a an ability to get to players through other people. So he would often yell at his coaches who were coaching different positions. So if uh, Joe Montana's not doing something, not doing something right – he would yell at the position coach. Sometimes, you know, Mike Holmgren, whoever it was, yell at the position coach if a play didn't go right. Now, what that did was it got the player thinking, hmm, I'm, I'm doing something wrong here. He's not yelling at me, but I'm making my coach look bad, and I, and I can't really be doing that. So he had this way of psychologically testing players. Now, Parcells was totally in your face. And, you know, we saw that growing up in New York and <laughs> looking at him, he would just – challenge guys and get right in their grill and say, you got to do this better. And there was, you know, there was no uncertainty about it. And Larry, I think Gibbs, you know, Gibbs didn't play games. He didn't feel, he felt he didn't need to play games. Very, very straight shooter, very straightforward. And just said, look, you know, he, he, he was very technique oriented, but he wasn't, he just didn't feel the need to push buttons psychologically sometimes the buttons were pushed for him you know buddy ryan really ticked him off one time and they had this game called the body bag game it was a monday night game and a lot of redskins players got hurt and, and uh, one of the, one of the philly players said that you know they didn't have enough body bags to get the players off the field and man i was told gibbs was never as angry as after that game and then they played him in the playoffs and they ended up winning that rematch so so it was things that motivated gibbs um, more than he would just kind of play games with his players. So game players in psychologically were Parcells and Walsh, and Gibbs was that, you know, here's how we're going to do it, and let's just go. I'm curious to your answer to this, Bob, because you mentioned how many different quarterbacks that Joe Gibbs had to use, but how important was that quarterback role? We look today 
Bob, you don't have a good quarterback. You're not going very far. Uh, mm-hmm. How important was the quarterbacks to these guys? I mean, Sims, we watched here. I mean, Sims and Parcells battled constantly. How important mm-hmm. was the quarterback play to this, the, the success of these coaches? Well, you know, that's a really good question, Larry. And I think the quarterback importance has grown over the years mm-hmm. since that time, although it was really important then. And I don't, I don't know that Bill Walsh wins championships without Joe Montana. Uh, I, I just don't think it happens because Montana was uniquely suited to run that offense. Um, Gibbs, now, now Gibbs, you could argue that, well, it didn't really matter which quarterback he had. He was going to, he was going to get the most out of that quarterback, but he also had to make choices. Now he had Jay Schrader the same year that he had Doug Williams and Schrader was the starter for most of that 87 season. And then at the very end, Gibbs is just seeing there's something missing. I, I, I got to see something more. And he, and he went to Doug Williams right before the playoffs. I mean, that was, <laughs> it was incredible. Mm-hmm. Right before the playoffs, mm-hmm. after the last regular season game, Gibbs tells Williams, you're, you're my quarterback. And, <laughs> like, and the guy won the Super Bowl. So the, that ability to make adjustments with those quarterbacks. And Parcells, there was a kind of a similar dynamic when he had to go to Hostetler once Sims got hurt in the 1990 season. So, so there's two, two guys who win Super Bowls with backup quarterbacks in Gibbs and Parcells. Now, Walsh never had the, you know, he didn't have the opportunity to do it because, because Montana was his guy. So he didn't have to show that kind of resourcefulness. But um, the importance of the quarterback was, was, it, was, it was fundamental to the game back then. But I think it's even more so now the way the game has changed. You know, it's so much more of a passing league now. No question about it. And it's funny that those quarterbacks, Bob, <laughs> clearly called more plays than these quarterbacks today do at the line of scrimmage. <laughs> oh, yes. No, no doubt about it. And the other interesting thing is, before we move on, is Walsh really handled the Joe Montana, Steve Young transition because, listen, hearing Steve Young talk constantly about it, there was no love lost between those two guys. No, there was none. But but I'll tell you what's interesting, and I learned in researching the book, and Young, Young told me this. You know, there was a lot of tension there. There was outside tension. But Young said one thing that really struck me. He says, you know, Bill Walsh would not have brought me to San Francisco if he didn't think I could somehow coexist with Joe Montana. Mm. Now, you've got to remember, in today's, today's NFL, it wouldn't have happened because Young would have gone somewhere where he'd play instantly. It's just the way the system is now. But back then, I mean, they traded it for him, and he goes to a team, and he's the backup to Joe Montana. So a star quarterback is the backup. But Young said that if Walsh didn't think that we could coexist, he wouldn't have brought me here. And they didn't hate each other. Um, they actually liked each other. There was a natural you know, problem there because they both wanted to play. Mm-hmm. But it worked out, and Walsh, you know, he did eventually bench Montana, and that was a problem. But it morphed into Joe Montana winning two straight Super Bowls after he got benched. So it kind of worked out in the end. Definitely did. Bob Glauber is my guest. He's the author of Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 80s. I mean, we'll talk Super Bowl with him as well. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. Bob, one of the great stories that you have in the book is about Bill Parcells speaking with then beat writer, the legendary Vinny Detrani, who I had the chance. He's been, he was covering that team for so long. When I started, he was coached. He was covering the mm-hmm. team and he spoke to him off the record and laid out his plan. Parcells did for a second season because the first season was brutal as Giants head coach. With that story in mind, 
Bob, could that happen today with how journalism has changed and the need to be first and the need to break stories and the need to make sure you break it and then put it on your Twitter account and your and your Facebook and your Instagram? Hey, that's a great question because you're absolutely right. There is pressure. Now, I would say that there could be that. There could be that story because, you know, coaches do still confide in writers. There still are off-the-record conversations that – just do not see the light of day. So I, I could see that happening if a guy, you know, remember Parcells and Vinny Detrani, in, in this case, he wrote for the record for many years. Vinny knew him when he was an assistant for mm-hmm. a long time. So there was built-in um, knowledge of, of each other then, and there was trust. And I remember Vinny telling me, he says, yeah, after 83, now the Giants were ready to fire Bill Parcells. He was 3-12-1. He lost both his parents in a short period of time. He lost an assistant coach. And he, they thought it was he was in over his head, but he presented this plan and he showed Vinny. And Vinny, he, after the conversation, goes, "Hey, can I write this?" And Bill goes, "No, you can't write that because I haven't shown it to George Young yet." <laughs> and it's like, yeah, that and it's just such a, a a nice little exchange there. But Vinny, you know, he he didn't write it, and and he kind of um, you know stayed stayed to the code there. Um, so those kind of relationships still do exist in today's NFL. I will tell you, Larry, it's harder to develop them because I think mm. I think players and coaches in today's game much much more guarded, and rightly so. I mean, yeah. Everything is out there instantaneously. There is social media, and it's really hard to kind of keep things you know private. So it's harder to develop that kind of trust. Um, and I'm glad I was able to kind of work in an era where you know the players and, and coaches did confide in you more and i i talk regularly to players that i covered back in the 80s and 90s and you know there's just a different feeling i'm i'm fascinated like sims i used to call sims two or three times a season now this is in season call him at home eight nine o'clock um and we just shoot the breeze for an hour okay Imagine a quarterback doing that in today's game. <laughs> not happening. It's not happening. You know, Bob. It's just not happening. <laughs> so I, I cherish those times, and I'm, I'm grateful to kind of have seen the NFL from that side, and it's it's really a fascinating look. But it's gotten so big, and so much stress, and so much scrutiny that I think players are much more guarded now. You know, there's so much in your book, and I want to. Um... Make sure that people go out and get it. We'll get the information out on the air. I know it's been out a while, but still around this time of the year, you, you kind of want to go back and look at it and see some of the things that you missed and just talk about this great era of coaches. I want to ask you one more thing about the book before we move on and talk about today's game. And that is, Bob, the, the, the influence of the NFL player strike in the mm-hmm. middle of this decade and how it affected these coaches. Well, there were two strikes. Um, 182, 187. Now, Gibbs, unusually, not unusually, but, you know, he won Super Bowls after both of those strikes. Now, cause and effect, I think there is a little bit of cause and effect. And a lot of his players said that, you know, Joe was great. In the, and, like, the 82 strike was a really long one, mm-hmm. and it lasted half the season. They ended up with an abbreviated season. and But, he, but what Gibbs did was he kept the team together. They would practice together. Um, at a local high school, and they just kept that camaraderie. And that camaraderie started in the offseason, actually, when he had he was kind of the forerunner of offseason training programs. And that really kept that team together. And once they came back from the strike, 
they were well ahead of everybody else. Same idea in 87. Now, they did have replacement games in 87, and the Redskins were very prepared. They went 3-0 and in those games, and it was huge because those games countered. The Giants didn't know if those games were going to count, and they're coming off a Super Bowl win, and George Young didn't want to really disrespect the regular players by going crazy with getting strike players. Mm-hmm. And it kind of bothered Parcells because he, you know, he just was not equipped to really deal with that, that, that situation. And they were, I think they finished six and nine that year and were out of the playoffs. So strike years, yes, it, they were difficult for everybody involved, but, but I think Gibbs took them as an opportunity uh, to keep his team together and, and succeeded in the end with, with winning Super Bowls. Yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. And I don't know, Bob, if, because obviously the currently the agreement between the league and the players is coming up shortly, is ending shortly. And there's going to be some things that's going to have to be negotiated in there. And I think there, there, there's probably as big a disconnect between the two sides as there's ever been. And it's going to be interesting to see how this goes because I don't think while there's a bigger disconnect, I don't think there's the unity among the players to get it done because I think the variation in salaries is so is so huge that the guys on the lower end, Bob, they can't afford not to go to work. Yeah. I want I want to say this, Larry. I want to call I want to say calm your fears. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be okay. Okay. You sure? All right. I need sure. my football, Bob. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. I'm 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 sure we're not gonna miss any games. Now don't don't forget the 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 dynamic between the owners and the players at this point in the negotiations, are much, much better. And, I, and mm-hmm. I'll, I'll tell you why. Before the last um, lockout, it was really the first lockout they've ever had. They had strikes before that. But before the, the lockout, the, um, the dynamic was really strained. And there was, there was talk of a lockout. There was anger on both sides. There was bitterness. There was not com- good communication. That is not happening now. They've already spent eight months negotiating. And I think you will see a new deal. Uh, before the end of this one, which expires after next season, mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to go that far, that long I, without a new deal. I think they will work something out. The 17 game season is the, the biggest sticking point. Once they resolve that, I think you'll see a new deal. I think you'll see a long term deal. And I don't, I don't, I don't know that you're going to see a strike for a long, long time after that. Whew. I feel That's better, me, Larry. Already. But I, I, feel but I, I, I feel pretty confident in that. Just knowing the the people on on both sides. Well, listen, uh, that's why you've got all these awards that we talked about in the, in the beginning of, of uh, the show. And, and listen, the, the head of the football writer should know what's going on. <laughs> we try. We try, Larry. <laughs> Bob is my guest. He's a columnist for Newsday. He's also an author of Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 80s. Uh, Bob, let's talk about the Super Bowl today. For me, it's, it's, it's such a fascinating matchup. I just hope it lives up to the hype because we've had fascinating matchups on paper before, Bob, and next thing, three hours later, it's 55-10. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Super Bowls in general have been much closer than the past. I remember that, uh, I think it was 55-10 when the 49ers beat beat the Chargers, right? And Steve Young gets his uh, gets yeah. his first Super Bowl win. But I, games are closer. I think the league is closer now in terms of competitiveness. But I, I do like the Chiefs. And if this one, see, in, in Super Bowls, when the game gets away from you, that can spiral out of control. And that's what happened back in the 80s and 90s when you had those blowouts. You know, the Cowboys would be blowing out the Bills if, when you think it's always oh, going to be close. 
So hopefully it is a close game. I, I do think the Chiefs have more firepower on offense. And the the 49ers are going to try to play this game, to me, like the Titans did. And the Titans weren't able to do it. They were a one-dimensional team, and they had to run the football, play good defense, and they did that almost perfectly for most of the first half. And then Patrick Mahomes gets that 27-yard touchdown run that is breathtaking, mm-hmm. and it changed, like that's it. You knew that that game was over then. It was only 21-17 after that, but the Chiefs you know, ran away with it in the second half. I think the 49ers are going to try to play like that because they've gotten there with their ground and pound. But Jimmy Garoppolo is going to have to throw the ball. I think Kyle Shanahan is going to have to let Jimmy Garoppolo throw the ball because the Chiefs are a team that scores a lot of points. Mm-hmm. And when, when you score a lot of points, and if you can't, if you can't answer that, then, then you've got a problem. So I kind of think that Kyle Shanahan is going to let Jimmy Garoppolo try to get loose early. You know, let him throw early just to kind of get get into a little bit of a rhythm because if you do have to score points and answer Patrick Mahomes with touchdowns, um, th- there's just no other way. The fascinating thing for me, Bob, is going to be, and listen, the 49ers defense is outstanding, especially their front seven. But Kansas City offensively can spread you out. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, how, how do you, and, and have, and has speed. So how do yeah. you deal with being spread out and speed? Cause you can't double everybody. So somebody's going to be in a one-on-one matchup. And to make matters worse, you've got a very, very talented tight end in the middle for the short game. Yep. Yep. I mean, you're, you are making Kyle Shanahan really nervous if he's hearing <laughs> us. <laughs> because it's, that's, that's it, man. And that's the challenge. Now, Robert Salah, the defensive coordinator of the 49ers, has done a terrific job. He's got a lot of first-round talent along that defensive line. Eric Armstead, got Nick Bosa. Um, D. Ford is now on that team after being traded from the Chiefs. So they've got a really good pass rush, and I think the pass rush is going to be the thing that can save the 49ers. I'm not saying it will, but it can. And they've got to be able to contain Mahomes. They would like to keep him from getting to the outside and make him uncomfortable in the pocket. Now, the problem with that is that Mahomes <laughs> never gets really uncomfortable. Because yeah. if you move him off of one spot, he'll get to another. And if you kind of keep him contained on the sides, well, if the, op- if the middle is open, he will go up there and he will, he will dash upfield. So he is like the ultimate quarterback. I mean, it's great to see such a good quarterback with such a good coach who knows how to bring out the best of him. And that's that's why this Kansas City team, to me, is I think it's the most enjoyable team to watch in football because when their offense is on, it's it's really great to watch. And I expect that it will be on, and, and the 49ers will certainly have their hands full with it. Bob, you've seen a lot of great quarterbacks. You've had a chance to cover a bunch of them. I mean, Mahomes, if he continues like this, he could be the, he could be one of the best of all time. Yes. Now, I, I will I will go back to the words of. Bill Parcells, who you know we, we we know and love over the years, right? Hey, hey, fellas, let's not put the guy into Canton on roller skates, okay? <laughs> now that said, he's awesome, yeah. <laughs> and I am, and it's very tempting to say, man, if if he stays healthy, uh, there the sky's the limit for this guy, and I and I think he could end up in that one of the great all time quarterbacks and great all time players. I mean, he's the best playmaking quarterback in football today and I, I include Lamar Jackson there because I think there's mm-hmm. something about Mahomes you know like he's more I think he's more comfortable 
in a spot where if he could play any kind of game. Um, and Jackson wasn't able to play from behind against the Titans, and it hurt him. But Holmes is, is just a little bit more polished at this point and can play it any which way. He's such a good pocket passer. He's such a good runner when he has to, and he's such a good guy to get elusive and take those little baby steps sometimes. And Brady's very good with this, and he's slow, mm-hmm. but he's very nimble in the pocket. And Mahomes has all of that. He's got a baseball cannon arm that he got from playing baseball, the son of Pat Mahomes, the former pitcher. Mm-hmm. And he's got great instincts in terms of movement, which he gets from basketball, and what a great football player. So put that all together, man. This guy is, is I mean, I, I enjoy watching him as much as any player in the NFL today. Because of the Niners' success on the ground, Bob, do we minimize what Garoppolo's talents can do in the air? Well, Larry, I think you can I, – I, it's hard to look at that. I think, I think Garoppolo has done a very good job in mm-hmm. his first full season as a starter. Right? Coming off mm-hmm. the injury, um, it's, it's been good for him. Now, the thing that I wonder about is, you know, if, if the coach really trusts his quarterback, he's going to let him throw – more than he has in those first two games. And, and you know, Shanahan has kind of had to to dodge a little bit and just say, look, I've seen him make these great throws on third and 16. Um, I've seen him do all kinds of great things. So, you know, leave Jimmy Garoppolo alone. He's, he's a great quarterback. But, you know, the bottom line is they're running the ball like crazy. And Garoppolo mm-hmm. threw for under 100 yards yeah. in the NFC Championship game. Well, I mean, great, uh, but at some point, He's going to have to make throws, whether it's this game, whether it's another game or what. It's going to, he's going to have to make throws down the field. And, um, I, you know, I think we're going to find out a lot about Jimmy Garoppolo because I think he's going to have to make some big-time big, big time plays, especially in this game, especially to try to match Patrick Mahomes. Definitely will be. Bob Glover is my guest, author, columnist, sports writer for Newsday. You're listening to New York Sports and Beyond here on 98.7 ESPN. Bob, let's transition locally. The New York Giants had a, had a chance to say goodbye to a their franchise quarterback who's going to go down as the best quarterback in their history, and Eli Manning. Bob, you're around during his whole career. What are your thoughts about Eli? And I'm going to go back, even though I read your column. Is he a Hall of Famer? Well, Eli, I think he had as good a career as a Giants quarterback as we've ever seen. I mean, he is mm-hmm. the greatest Giants quarterback in franchise history, no doubt about it. Better than Sims, uh, better than Charlie Connerly better than Wyatt Tittle, better than all of them. So um, there's, there's no question about that. First Giants player ever to play 16 seasons. Never missed a game because of injury. Seventh all-time in touchdown passes. Seventh all-time in uh, passing yards. And two Super Bowl MVPs. So, I mean, to me, those make him a Hall of Fame-worthy player. Does he get there on the first ballot? I don't know. I, I, I would say no because there's a lot of debate and I I am a Hall of Fame voter and I know in that room there are voters who are skeptical about Eli Manning when you compare him to other quarterbacks of his era and that's that's going to be a challenge you know Philip Rivers will retire fairly soon Um, Ben Roethlisberger will retire fairly soon so will Drew Brees and so will Tom Brady and eventually those guys might all be in the room together and when you're looking at them you know Eli Manning is kind of behind quite a few of them Mm-hmm. But just in terms of overall resume, body of work, I, I think the guy does it. You know, the teams around him were not good toward the end. And that's, you know, look, he's still got to be, you know, he's 
still got to be mindful of that. He's still got to be able to lift his team and, and lift his players, even though the talent isn't around him. And he didn't do that all the time. But you know, at the end of the day, I, I think he is a Hall of Fame player. And for me, Bob, I agree with you. And I think, and I understand, you know, was he the best quarterback ever in his era and all the other stuff? I understand what the negotiations and the controversies and the discussions are. But for me, the bottom line is who he beat in those two Super Bowls, Bob. Mm-hmm. He beat a team that was that was going for a perfect record first since Miami, and he beat that great team again. I mean, this is if, if we're going to talk about how great Bill Parcells, uh, Bill Belichick was, and how great Tom Brady was, and the teams that they they were part of, and rightfully so. If you beat them, then that's got to say something about you. Oh, there's no question about it. And, and not only did he beat them, um, but he beat them with iconic throws. Yeah, and the first one to Tyree, the second one to Manningham. Now, I will say, and, and this argument will come up in the Hall of Fame room, um, look, they, Eli Manning doesn't beat those teams without great defense. And those Giants' defenses were terrific. They were. Um, against the Patriots both times. And that really, that was very important. I'm telling you, this doesn't happen. Eli Manning's not going to win a shootout um, against those teams, necessarily. Mm-hmm. But That's right. when, when he had to get it done, he did get it done. And he got it done on the big stage with big plays. And, you know, hey, that's the mark of a champion. And, and he's got it, and he's got it twice. And I say to that, Bob, when in that game did you see Justin Tuck give a fake handoff and throw the ball down the field 70 yards for a score? <laughs> because right. the, the defense shuts him out, but if you don't score, you're yeah. not winning. It's true. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, yeah, right. But the, the defense, there, there's no doubt they don't do this without no, no a great defensive effort. There's, that NASCAR there's no package doubt. was outstanding. It's right. great. It was um, great. But big play, big moment, big player, rose to the occasion. You know that that's what. Do you, what what else is there for a Hall of Fame player? Speaking of the quarterbacks, Bob, for our local teams, what do you see? We've got uh, Daniel Jones, Danny Dimes, baby, coming back next mm-hmm. season, and we've got uh, Sam Darnold, who's really interesting to me because you know finally he'll get the same. Uh, you know, game plan going in, but I got to be honest with you, Bob, and a lot of the callers are, that I speak to were a little concerned. We're not really sure how to read, you know, uh, the Jets head coach, the Jets offensive coordinator. We're not sure how to read him as far as putting Sam Darnold in the best place to be successful. Mm-hmm. Larry, we're <laughs> certainly not at that place just yet. And uh, I think there are legitimate questions about Adam Gase. Um, and I think there are I think there are legitimate questions about Sam Donald. You know, he he mm-hmm. took some steps forward, but didn't have that kind of you know jump that that you want to see from from year one to year two. Um, I I think a lot is on the line this season, and I think Joe Douglas, the general manager, is going to be a very very important person in terms of getting some talent in here, rebuilding the offensive line, which was a problem all season last year, and that affects the quarterback and trying to get a defense that can rush the passer quite a bit better. So this is very important for Joe Douglas, but it's also important for Adam Gaze. And I think this is going to be his pressure year. Uh, they, you know, Christopher Johnson gave him that vote of confidence, said, I'm not doing anything, and he went on a run against mediocre teams toward the end of the year. But listen, this is where the rubber is going to meet the road. And if Adam Gaze has another losing season, and depending on how that season goes, um, I, I, I think they could make a move. And this is not not an easy schedule that they're going to no, play. No, it isn't. Nope. So a lot on the line for Adam Gaze and the Jets this year, no question. 
and for Daniel Jones in his uh, second year, but this time with the new uh, new offense. Yeah, I like I like Danny Dimes. I like Danny Dimes as a as a player. I like him as a thrower. I love his accuracy. He, th- I'm telling you, I'm watching him in the press box, and I'm like, oh no, don't throw that. Whoa, you, holy cow! Yeah. That guy, like between two defenders and between three defenders, sometimes his accuracy is uncanny. He's got to create. Um, uh, an ability for himself to overcome the fumbling problem, no question. I mean, it's not rocket science. He's got to do that. I think he will. I think Joe Judge will be a good influence on him as a demanding head coach on the players around him. And I think Jason Garrett, and I think he's not, Jason Garrett's not going to lobby for the head coaching position. They know that Joe Judge is the guy. So, But Garrett now has a lot to prove for himself. Let him call some good plays. Let him groom Danny Jones at Daniel Jones. And I think I think things will work out offensively for this team. They've got to do some rebuilding. Dave Gettleman's got to get more good young players in there. And he's got some free agent money salary cap-wise this year. So there is a chance that this team could be, um, I, don't, I don't want to say significantly better in, in 2020, but certainly you know, better than 4-12, and 12, that's for sure. That's for sure. Bob, how's your golf game coming along? I know you're busy during the football season, but I know you're out there swinging. No, man, I wish I could play. I used to play, Larry. I know. I did. I did. But I, I, two, my two highlights were shooting a 79 one time before wow. I just said I, I just don't have enough time. So I did shoot 79. That's a way to walk away on top. <laughs> <laughs> and then Many athletes don't get to do that, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> and then beating Rich Samini for the first three holes of a match play, a, a big competition we had because we had challenged each other many years ago. I was up three holes in the first three, and I got him muttering to himself on the fairway of the fourth hole, and then I collapsed, and he beat me. But after that third hole, man, I was on top of the world. So that's about <laughs> it, Larry. I appreciate you asking. <laughs> well, listen, you got you, you got one championship and 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 a, and a runner up. That's pretty good, Bob. <laughs> there you go. There you go. I'll take that's it. Pretty good. Listen, my friend. Good talking to you as always. Thanks for a couple of minutes. The book is Guts and Genius, the story of three unlikely coaches who came to dominate the NFL in the 80s. Bob, how can we get this book? Uh, you can get anywhere you, you buy your books, uh, Amazon, Walmart.com, wherever, wherever you want to go. You did a great job with the book, and, and I, I love reading your columns. You're one of the best columnists around, and I, uh, you know, I enjoy reading you. Larry, I can't thank you enough, and I'm and I'm I'm seeing you at the Jets, and hopefully, I will see you pretty soon. I may make a cameo appearance down there when they win. I've I've seen enough losing. I want to come Great. down there and start Great. winning again. Come back, come back. If you if it me if you're back, it means they're winning. We'll take it. Bob, enjoy the game today. Thanks again, my friend. All right. Thank you, Larry. I appreciate it. That wraps up this edition of New York Sports and Beyond on 98.7 ESPN. We thank you for listening. We'll join you on the drive this morning at 11 o'clock. Then we'll also join you next week on ESPN New York Tonight and right back here next Sunday for New York Sports and Beyond. For my incredibly talented producer, Ray Santiago, I'm Larry Hardesty. The conversation continues with a Super Bowl edition of Fantasy Focus with Danita Marks next on 98.7 ESPN New York.